as, as our youngins are headed out, um, you know, one of the things that just really uh, stands out to me right now and something that, that I want to keep sort of at the, at the front of our minds is um, we've got a lot going on. If you look at the week that we just kind of went through together and the week maybe that we're facing, not really knowing what's coming, um, in the last week, just the, 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 the spectrum of emotion. Uh, we had uh, a memorial for a beloved congregation member that joined the resurrection. We had a birth. We had all kinds of stuff in between. Um, and the reason I bring that up is we start another week together today is that we don't have to do any of that stuff alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first Sunday here or uh, your millionth Sunday here. We do this together. We live this life together. And honestly, there's times where, you know, I take a look at that and the only way I make it through the week is knowing that. So um, I am thankful very much for you all and that we are walking this out together. Um, before we get started, I do want to add uh, one spotlight that, uh, that, that's uh, actually really cool that's coming from uh, an announcement that happened uh, about a month ago. Um, Gary and Carolyn Osland were here and they shared a little bit about uh, a ministry that they do at the Yellowstone County Detention Center and also the, uh, the women's prison um, here in town. And there was some, uh, there, there was some interest in, in getting involved in that and what that looks like. And so what we're going to do, if you would look at that Connect card in front of you, if that is something that you would like more information on, uh, this isn't a commitment to be a part of anything yet, but if you want to know what it looks like to be a part of the jail ministry, uh, the, the needs, all that kind of stuff, we're going to have a meeting where the, the Austins are going to come in and we're going to sit down and talk about it. If you're interested in that, if you would just put that on a Connect card and drop it in the box and we will uh, connect, we'll get all that stuff set up. So um, that is a, a really important and tangible way to serve that, that's uh, immediately in front of us. So if, if you're interested in that, uh, please fill out a Connect card and we will be in touch. Um, before we uh, continue our series, Abide, why don't we pray? Father, I pray that, that you would come and make your presence known. I pray that, that each of us would feel you amongst us, around us, within us. And I pray, Father, with that, that we would also see you go back through the past week of our timeline. I pray that as we see you go back through that timeline, I pray that we would also see you remove barriers. I pray that, that we would see you bring healing. I also pray that you would, that we would see you celebrate and that we would join you in that. Father, as we are together as a body this morning, I pray that you would unite us. I pray that you would connect us through your word today. I pray that we would know that you are a God for us, that you are God with us. So would you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are uh, continuing our series, uh, Abide, today, and hopefully you are uh, more happy about that than uh, our youngin out there. Um, but I, I understand, if you're not, we'll get there. We'll get there together. Um, we're examining the parable today of the Good Samaritan. Now, last week, Jenna unpacked a parable that dealt with prayer, 
this week, we have one that suggests that the way we respond to others is also connected to how we talk to God. Our prayer life and the relationships we have with other people share a link in the reality of what or where we draw life from. So looking for the teaching of Jesus to help us see what it means to abide in him, we, we have a story today that's been misunderstood and misapplied in a variety of formats for several thousands of years, all the thousands of years uh, from the, the time that Jesus taught it up to our meeting here today. Now, some of those teachings are, are benign. Some of those teachings are, are, are not necessarily dangerous because while they miss the main point of the, the Good Samaritan, they do hold on to a secondary or tertiary point that, that we can extract from the teaching um, and, and that's also kind of supported by Scripture. So some of those uh, misapplications aren't necessarily dangerous. They just miss the point. One example of that would be the, to pull from this, the text here the moral imperative to help someone that is in trouble to help someone in distress. Now, obviously, that is absolutely a good teaching, right? That's something that, that we would agree with, that we would hold close. But it isn't the main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan because morality can become something that's more about us than about those that are around us. Morality can become yet another works-based metric that allows us to do the right thing but avoid the deeper, more personal connection to, to why we are doing these things. Morality can become about my action that will allow me to earn something or allow me to avoid something rather than be about drawing life from something in order to bear fruit. Now, anyone at any time could turn any Bible story into a lesson on morality. That type of lesson, though, taking the Good Samaritan or any other scripture and making it about morality is about behavior, not the belonging to a relationship that would change behavior. Teaching that remains in the moral plane is a lot like drinking a warm, flat Coke. <laughs> it's Coke, but it kind of sucks. <laughs> I mean, it is a Coke, but it's really not refreshing at all. <laughs> Turning the teachings of Jesus into moral behavioral lessons also can be a defense mechanism against drawing life from him. His teachings call us into troubling situations. We find ourselves in places that demand humility rather than places that allow us to draw power. Or maybe exert power is a better way to say that. The temptation to just behave rather than to submit to the will of God, to submit to this humility, that temptation is strong. This is at, at play when we observe what went on before Jesus taught this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the interaction that, that happened that led to his teaching. Before we observe that interaction, 
And before we actually get to the parable, let me take a moment and examine the players that we're going to see in this parable. Now, first, we've got a traveler. We have a travel. We know that he's Jewish, um, and that he is a traveler. Those are the only two things that we know about this dude in the story. This guy makes the story possible because he does something that will lead to him needing help. He he does something that honestly, by the way, is really dumb. He does something that puts himself in a situation that requires other people to act. There's also going to be a priest and a temple assistant, a Levite. Jesus will use the the, the priest and the Levite to compare and contrast the actions of the final player, the Samaritan. Now, the word Samaritan has evolved in the English language to mean something that, or, or to mean someone that helps others. We have organizations that, that have taken the name Good Samaritan or, or like Samaritan's Purse. Many organizations take that name and it's emblematic of, of a charitable posture or a desire to help. But Samaritan, to a Jew, means something much different in the cultural context of the Bible. To a Pharisee of the biblical times, any Pharisee that would hear this story that Jesus is teaching, when the Samaritan shows up, they likely thought that the villain of the story had finally arrived. And they were shocked to see that that wasn't the case. Samaritans were so bad in the Jewish context that the term had come, become sort of like a, a racial slur. It was a deprecating comment that was even lower than calling someone a heretic. There's even scripture where we see the Pharisees call Jesus a a Samaritan in order to to cause some sort of injury, an emotional injury. Samaritans, historically, are a product of the exile. After Assyria conquered Israel in the 7th century B.C., some people were taken captive and resettled in other lands, and other people outsiders from from the Assyrian Empire moved into Samaria, which led to cultural interactions that that changed the local culture in Samaria. It included intermarriage and and sort of like a melding of, of religious practices. What happened is this led to a diluting of the adherence to Jewish law as the Samaritans were influenced by an outside culture. Now, from a spiritual perspective, the Samaritans created a religion that was a mixture of Jewish and pagan beliefs and practices, and and though they thought of themselves as Jewish, they were despised by the Jews, and they didn't mingle with, with each other, with their own ancestry. This animosity between the two groups grew over time, with both sides perpetuating what they thought it meant to be Jewish and deploring those that practiced differently than they did. So while the Jews and the Samaritans have a shared ancestry, the differences between the two sides could not be reconciled. Both sides truly believed that their side was the only side 
that honored God and maintained covenant relationship with him. Both sides saw the other as polluting the word of God and corrupting his law. As a Jew, as a member of the nation of Israel, Jesus was aware of this historical animosity and frequently worked to bridge the rift as an example of the ministry of reconciliation. In John 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well and offers her the living water of relationship with him, and he creates in her one of the very first Christian evangelists. The engagement of this divide on the part of Jesus was intentional and frequent. But why? Why would he intentionally do this? Why would he intentionally do this as often as he did? Some present realities in this that are in our world and also were alive and well in the biblical world is that there are clear black and whites. There are clear right and wrongs. Some varying shades of wrong that while they aren't black, they're clearly not white. This is a a present reality that we have with with people engaging scripture, as well as the, the nation of Israel would have as they engaged what they saw as scripture. The Samaritans as well were able to create their own system of right and wrong, black and white. Now, in in presenting that and presenting this in the way that I am, I am in no way condoning heretical activities on the part of the Samaritans or on the part of the Jews. I'm, I'm making the case that all of what they did to each other they were able to find a way to excuse it. They were able to excuse their behavior towards each other. So I'm not letting anyone off the hook. I'm just making the point that Jesus was aware of this breach of relationship, and he spoke into this often. So why would that possibly matter to us today? Why do we care about this on a Sunday morning here? I think that that we might all agree that today it feels like it's easier to create boundaries than it is to reach across them. In the United States, there are over 200 formal Christian denominations. And added to those 200 formal Christian denominations, there are hundreds of splinter groups that that fracture off of the main And they begin their own path towards becoming a new formal denomination, often because both sides truly believe that their side was the only side that honored God. Their side was the only side that maintained covenant relationship with him. And both sides see the other side as polluting the word of God and corrupting his law. I found one study this week that says worldwide there are over 40,000 religious groups that call themselves Christian. 40,000. I would argue that at least one may have something wrong. 
at least one of those 40,000 might have made an error. Maybe. Many of these groups split because of ideology. And those splits have been violent, either physically or emotionally. In many cases, this has led to dehumanizing people based on, on how political culture has influenced religious practice. This is the creation of the modern Samaritan paradigm. It's important to consider this as we begin, as we begin this parable today. This question is really the question that we have to ask as we unpack this parable. Not who needs assistance, but who is our Samaritan? Who are we willing to help? But more importantly, who are we not? The interesting thing about these questions is these are not the questions that Jesus was asked that began this parable. So join me in Luke chapter 10 as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There's so much going on in this interaction. First, this expert in religious law. We know this is, this is a Pharisee. Uh, he's a Jewish leader that sought to define what it was to follow the law so he could instruct others in the practice. Consider his opening question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? This question, it's a selfish question, and it's rooted in the idea of working our way into heaven. Give me the, give me the litmus test. Give me the checklist. If I could have the checklist that would tell me the things that I need to do to make sure that I'm good to go, I can do that and then get on with my life. This expert is seeking an answer to what he can do to be saved because he wants a formula. He wants a formula that, that he can manipulate to fit his own life so his will remains intact. But also, as he asks this question, we, we know based on what's going on between the Pharisees and Jesus, we know that he's probably also not asking this question honestly. He really isn't asking because he needs Jesus to teach him what to do to follow the, follow the law. He's asking this of Jesus because he's trying to trap him. He's trying to lead him into saying something that he can use to attack Jesus and thus end Jesus' ministry and that the trouble his message is causing for all of those that, that hold religion so closely. Jesus leads him to answer his own question. That he must love God with all that he is and love his neighbor as himself. He gets that one right. 
and Jesus says so. But the religious expert asked the question that gets us to the real question. Who's my neighbor? Why did he ask this? The text tells us why he asked that question. He wanted to justify his actions. He wanted to justify his treatment of anyone that wasn't a Jew. He wanted to, to justify anyone that did not fit his formula for Jewish purity or people that were worth having community with. The neighbor for this religious expert and many religious experts that are here today, the neighbor is the one that looks like me. The neighbor is the one that prays like me, that believes like me, that behaves like me. Over the centuries of lived history, the nation of Israel had defined neighbor as a fellow member of the nation of, Is of Israel, but one that's in good standing and clean for ceremony. The religious expert is seeking to self-justify because the teachings of Jesus don't reflect this man's actions. Now, unfortunately, this expert in religious law speaks a language that, that uh, I'm fluent in as well. The language of self-justification. Anybody, anybody else know that language? I am fluent in it. And that's not a brag. That's not even a humble brag. That is a confession of brokenness. Self-justification is a self-centered attitude where people will def define their actions or defend their actions. I'm sorry. It's where we will defend our actions and beliefs without reference to God or apart from God's teachings. It isn't that God is wrong per se, and this is me speaking when I'm self-justifying. It's not that God's wrong. It's just that, that if the teaching kind of is out of line with my own comfort, with my own ease or my own safety, then I'm really not going to hold myself to needing to do it. Self-justification is something that, that followers of Jesus must work out of their practice. We must work out self-justification because self-justification makes a relationship with Jesus impossible. We cannot self-justify because we are not the ones that justify us. Another way to say that, and something that this religious expert is missing, is that self-justification is impossible before a holy God. Malachi 3, we see the prophet Malachi say this, but who will be able to endure it when he comes? Talking about the second coming of Jesus. Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. Paul in Romans 5, reminds us that justification is achieved by God, not by people. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, 
Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. And then again to the church in Galatia. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God, who loved me and and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for it is keeping the law. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. If we could justify ourselves, we would have no need for Jesus. Self-justification can come through ignoring the message of God. It can come through pride. Often it can come through fear. It can come through legalism, creation of of religious expression. But ultimately, what self-justification does is it creates a divide between God and people. If the greatest commandment is to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourself, self-justification is poison to living out those commands. Jesus meets this self-justification with the story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho where he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And we saw, when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time that I'm here. This road between Jerusalem and Jericho was then and even remains today likely the most dangerous road in the world. It's also uh, not just dangerous because of the bandit activity, but it's, it's dangerous because, it, it, because of the terrain. The elevation, uh, something like, like 20 miles, the elevation drops like 3,000 feet. And there's a lot of twists and turns, a lot of places for people to hide. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the road is, is narrow. This is not an easy road to traverse, but even in the times of Jesus, this is not a road that anybody would ever travel alone. In fact, it was so... Uh, well known that you know, most people would avoid that road altogether and go the long way around to get to the West Bank. Uh, but this is something 
that, that, we, that our Jewish traveler here, the fact that he was on this road alone is, is just, it is an act of, of, of stupidity. It is, he, there, there's no way for, for somebody traveling alone to not end up in the situation that this man ended up in. And this actually is even true today, that, that going from Jerusalem to Jericho, this road is, is, there is such a threat of being attacked by Islamic jihadists that, that going around the long way is actually what you'll, you'll find um, folks in the, in the nation of Israel doing now. They avoid this road. The Jewish traveler is making a case that you reap what you sow because nobody is going to travel this road alone. He is making it very difficult to want to help him because he was a moron. Now, obliquely, Jesus is also in this attacking the notion that we shouldn't help people because people make stupid decisions. This one is pretty dumb, but this dude is still worthy to be helped. You think about how easy it is to dehumanize somebody for doing something stupid. I've done a lot of stupid things. It's easy to uh, forget that when I'm looking at some other behavior. And uh, it's something that that I think is important, at least as a, a secondary point, that there is nobody that, based on their actions, has, has made them unworthy of being helped. This dude should not have been on the road, but he was. And he got beaten to the point of, of death. His decision to take that road doesn't give license for somebody to beat him. Helping those, regardless of how they got into their situation, is a really important secondary point of this parable, of this message. Members of his own tribe members of his own church family, leaders of his church family, leaders of his tribe, see him there. They see him beaten to the point of death. They know that he's a fellow Jew. In other words, they know that he's a neighbor. By their own definition, this man is a neighbor. But to touch him, if he were dead, would rob them of the ability to worship in the temple for at least seven days. They would become unclean if they touched a dead body. They would be unable to join the community for worship. And so they justified their behavior. Their inclusion in community was set before the word of God. This also displays their fear. They are more afraid of being excluded or being seen unclean than they are of of what might happen if they refuse to help this neighbor. They're more worried about what would happen to them than what happened to this traveler. They're fearful that any connection to this man would lead to a lack of their own purity. Now, we can question if this is alive and well today as we consider who the Samaritans are in our context. 
being afraid of getting some of their stuff on us? Who are we afraid that if we touch might make us impure? If we get some of their stuff on us, the rest of our community might exclude us. This leads us sometimes to not engage, to not pray for, to not serve those that would be in this modern Samaritan paradigm. The ministry of exclusion is not a ministry of the living God. I feel like we can amen that point, right Brad? The ministry of exclusion is not a ministry of the living God, but many that claim to follow him are driven by fear as they avoid engaging with those that they're uncomfortable to engage with. Self-justification. These Jewish religious leaders choose to claim their idea of purity over compassion. The despised Samaritan acts differently. Now, if you think of of any of the three that actually had a decent reason, culturally, he had every reason to pass by. He had every reason to even wish death on the dude. He had every reason that as he passed by to kick dirt on him as he headed down the road. He had every reason to do that. And in fact, that is something that they probably did to each other a lot. This Samaritan also may have been, probably was a heretic. This guy's theology is likely messed up and polluted. This guy likely took the parts of of, of following the Lord, parts of the law that that he liked, mixed them with some things that, that he heard that made him feel good, created his own religion and had this messy, polluted, corrupted nonsense that he believed. That's probably true of this Samaritan. In spite of all of that, he still demonstrated the heart of God by showing compassion on someone that needed help. He even places his credit and reputation on the line with the innkeeper. He crosses a dogmatic boundary regardless of who that person was in order to do what his theology directed. If you've been with us for, for a length of time, you might remember our founding pastor used to use this, this phrase often that our theology drives our practice, not the other way around. Another way to say that is what we do demonstrates what we believe. What we do demonstrates from where we draw life. The priest and the Levite, we cannot make the case that they are drawing life from the living God. This despised Samaritan showed compassion 
regardless of who the person in need was and regardless of what that person believed. Theology drives our practice. What we do exposes what we believe and exposes where we draw life from. I'll let Jesus make that point, though, in verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man replied, the one who showed mercy. One of my favorite passages of scripture comes next. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. And so that's where we are together today in this place. The uncomfortable side of this is examining what this means, this Samaritan paradigm where boundaries might have been created, even maybe recognizing the fact that that's true and asking ourselves together, what are we going to do about that? We have this from Jesus. Yes, now go and do the same. Go and do the same. So as we draw life from the vine that is Jesus, we will reflect him in the community. Reflecting Jesus is not about creating boundaries. It's not about creating divisions. It's not about perpetuating division. Reflecting Jesus is about reaching across the boundary and stepping into the humble task of the ministry of reconciliation. The outcome of abiding in Jesus is compassion regardless of differences. There are a lot of people that potentially we have some differences with. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to condone their actions. We don't have to agree or condone the way that they practice their religion. We don't have to agree. We don't have to condone. But we do have to serve. Our service to those that disagree with us is not accepting their beliefs, it's demonstrating ours. So when we look at this parable, the parable of our neighbor, as we've been in the habit of renaming parables, we might as well rename this one too. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? All of them.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that as we examine this parable that you taught us so long ago, I pray that, that from a place of, of joy we could engage this scripture. I pray that as we, just, as we take stock of boundaries, as we take stock of differences, as we take stock of, of all of the things that might make us uncomfortable about other people, especially those that claim to know you and follow you. I pray, Father, that you would give us the humility and the strength to reflect your love into those places. So, Father, I pray that we would find all the travelers. Father, as we together go into the week, I pray that we would find all the travelers. I pray that you would put them before us, and I pray that together... We, as a reflection of you in Billings, would show compassion. So, Father, would you make us able to defeat boundaries? In Jesus' name.